broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. A very good morning, guys. Happy Friday, as always. How are you? Oh, great. Doing Thanks, well. Yes. Doing well, it's been a very big week, hasn't it, with uh, everything that's gone on? I mean, we've had the presidential uh, debate, Jenny McCarkos uh, resigning, and Joel going back to the gym for personal training, and he can't walk anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Huge week. <laughs> Thanks, Steph. Yeah. A, a week of heavy lifting. It is exactly right. Exactly right. Now, Joel, you were pain. actually watching that uh, presidential campaign because I could hear you laughing while I was actually working. Uh, <laughs> any takes on how that went? Oh well, look, I mean, it's, it's caught plenty of news throughout the week uh, in regards to how terrible it was. Um, I don't think any, I mean, is this the best that America can put up as leaders of the free world? Uh, I mean, I mean, seriously, um, it wasn't a debate. It was a schoolyard bloody uh, argument. That's what it was. And, um, you know, Trump obviously went in there to try and dominate and try and rattle Biden, but it didn't work. It completely backfired. He looked like a fool. And Biden then sort of, you know, bit into it and he started biting back and he looked like another fool as well and uh and the two of them didn't cover themselves in any glory at all and i think ultimately the big loser uh is america this is uh, the best that you guys can do in terms of uh putting up uh, potential leaders of the free world did, did um, you guys watch it louis did you see the debate yourself no i didn't watch the debate myself what about you brett no i only just saw like the the news afterwards that showed the well i don't know if you call them highlights let's call them low lights yeah, <laughs> I think that's all you needed to actually watch. Yeah, yeah. There was no. I mean, when you uh, have a presidential debate, the i the idea is to debate ideas, you know, policies, your yeah. plan for yeah. for the future and the vision of of the country, how your plan is going to be better than the other person's plan, and how you know it's going to be how you you know your idea of what you want your country to look like and how you're going to try and shape that country for for better or worse, and to debate the pros and cons of it. This was just an all-out, uh, you know, hissy fit more than anything. Mm. It's like two two children, honestly, you know, fighting over uh, a pack of lollies. <laughs> so true, so true. And the what about the carcass? Uh, the, the impression I get about the presidential situation is in 2016, Donald Trump captured all the attention and didn't matter what kind of attention, he just needed to capture it, and that was his... Uh, his his method of winning, and any time he's in a situation, he he just looks to dominate the attention. Yeah. Uh, so if he is going to dominate the attention, no matter what, then it leaves whoever's competing against him. Uh, all they can do is be different to Trump. They can't let their own personality come out because they're going to get disrupted so much and they can't capture that attention. So all they can do, and for their whole campaign, all they, they, they have to build their whole message and perception and marketing around not being Trump. Yeah. So when Trump's got all the attention, 
who's the candidate who is just going to pull enough of the uh, votes away from Trump? Well, it's going to be someone who maybe looks like Trump, who's not totally different to Trump, who's comparable to Trump. So it's not going to be a female, it's not going to be a young person, and we're left with this old white male who doesn't need to look impressive, um, just needs to look like a slightly different um, but slightly appealing alternative to Trump to try and get some of those votes away. I was kind of impressed, though, at the fact that he could actually string a sentence together, Biden, this time, because normally he doesn't really get any words out that make any kind of sense. So I I did hear, though, that Trump had asked him to check. I think they they asked to check if he was wearing an earpiece that I heard. Yeah. Uh, They weren't feeding him the answers, which, I mean, just it's just quite insane. I mean, that's just something that in Australia you'd never even sort of think of asking in that kind of a debate. Yeah. He's 77. It's... I mean, it's it's fairly late to be taking on a really important position. Yeah. Well, it's highly. I don't. I don't think anybody uh, genuinely expects that Biden will probably uh, contest uh, a second term. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the general consensus that he will probably do the first term and then hand over uh, after that because he'll be 81 by the time the next uh, election happens if he is in power. And yeah. um, look, there's a good argument to suggest that some of his faculties aren't working as well as what they used to um and uh but then again you know i mean it's the lesser of two evils in this case in in some regards so it'll be interesting to see whether or not the u.s vote for the devil they know versus the devil they also know yeah yeah (laughs) i mean they know of biden but biden has been around for a very very long long time but biden's never really been in a position of, of influence like what he's quite in at the moment. The the vice president in the United States is very much takes a, a, a backward seat. It, it's um, it, the president has the power. The vice president is is really just sitting there in the background, not really influencing a hell of a lot. Typically, you can't generally say that he's been in that position of power when really it was Obama who was leading it. Um, and he was there as the as, as the safety net, so to speak. Um, Should he get in? During his tenure, he would become the oldest ever serving president. Is that right? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Who was the oldest in light of that? Uh, Ronald Reagan. Reagan, okay. Yeah. He left office uh, two weeks shy of his 78th birthday. Right. Wow, okay. Oh, wow. So he was leaving at age 77 and Biden's trying to get in there at age 77. <laughs> yeah. It's- yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be an interesting one. I just don't think either of them put themselves in a particularly good light. So, you know, it's anyone's guess who's going to win this. Yeah. Yeah. What about Makarkos? I just wanted to touch on that. It's been a huge week with that as well. Um, she's resigned, um, obviously bearing the brunt of, of uh, the hotel quarantine. And, and Dan Andrews looks like he's uh, hands off with it, saying, look, it's, uh, it's not his fault. Joel, I mean, you, you normally have a, an opinion on this kind of stuff. Just try and not go too heavy on Dan Andrews yet again. <laughs> well, uh, look, I mean, he's he's the Teflon uh, Teflon Premier, isn't he? Really, nothing ever sticks, um, and uh, you know, he's he's a stubborn, pig-headed bastard, and uh, seems to be working for him at the moment. Um, it seems as though uh, you know he he still has the favour of the party room uh, at Labor. Find it incredible that he's still in power. Still find it incredible that. Uh, Martin Pakul is still uh, in power. I mean, you know, I, I look at how things are done in the real world in the corporate sector because that's what I know. And Rio Tinto, I come back to that same argument. Rio Tinto 
lost three of their executives, including the CEO, as a result of a failed um, explosion that blew up a, an Aboriginal protected site. And yet we've let complete bungling and failure in, in this hotel quarantine and just lies and lies and lies about it. Um, I, I just can't believe, like even this inquiry, this inquiry that, that took place, I mean, yes, it raised questions, but it was like a toothless tiger inquiry. It, it, it had no ability to compel any action to be taken. Uh, the report is yet to be handed down, that, that's fair to say. But at the end of the day, uh, these leaders need to be responsible for their actions. They need to be responsible for their failures. I mean, we've seen ministers lose their job over directing you know, funds into uh, sporting programs but we, we can't see these ministers step aside or be sacked uh, when they've brought down a whole economy uh, because of their own incompetence. Well, where do you think it went wrong, though, Joel? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, has he got friends in high places that are keeping him there? Because it seems interesting that you say that it was just handed down, that decision, and he's not taking the heat for it. But why are Australians letting this pass? And why, why isn't he being grilled? So the inquiry hasn't yet handed down its decision. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he says he's going to wait for that. But he's got no intention of resigning. He, That's he right. But he seems to have a lot of supporters, though, Joel, on that side of it. You know, it seems seems to be that he's, he's as you said, he's Teflon and untouchable. And, you know, it doesn't look like he's, he's going to ever step down. Well, well, there's a lot of people out there who feel as though he's doing a good job. There's a lot of people out there who feel as though he is protecting them. And it's not uncommon during periods of turmoil that people will look to their leaders regardless of their flaws uh, for that strength and, and leadership and and perceived safety. Um, uh, you know, so it, it's just a sign of the times that, that people are being much more forgiving um, in this respect. Yeah. Mm. I don't see them as um, telling lies through through their teeth, not the not the lot of them anyway, uh, not, not in a not in a substantial way that um, that you might be suggesting. I certainly see deficits deficits in the organisational structure and the decision making, and that has been clear. And there's going to be university studies, uh, case studies on on this type of organisational behaviour and decision making structures in future. It's yeah. um, it, it reminds me of textbook cases when I was at university, uh, which is now oh geez, how long ago is that now? I'm getting old. <laughs> Um, uh, but definitely you can see the, the failings of, of bureaucracy and how it hasn't been set up in a way that has handled it as successfully as other places. What I don't know is what are those other bureaucracies look like in other states of Australia? Um, have they managed this better because they were set up differently um, or, um, uh, or was it just luck? Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Louis, I just want to challenge that a little bit, right? We, and we can have a healthy debate here. Um, yeah. You know, we've we've had uh, eight people who are all supposed to be in charge of this hotel quarantine issue, and eight people, uh, all in leadership positions, not one of them could tell who was responsible for appointing a security firm that wasn't even on the register of preferred security firms, uh, that had turnover of something like about 2 or $3 million, was awarded a $30 million contract, um, not one of them in senior position could name who was responsible for that decision. Now, come on, that's a fucking lie. Yeah, there has to be a lie in there. Someone known. Well, someone, someone made the decision. Some, it started with somebody. <laughs> someone knows who made the decision. And if one person didn't know, or if, if none of them know, 
then they all should go because they're either incompetent. And and if if they do know, well, then they should bloody point that person out and that person should wear the responsibility. Still so today, I, I someone had to appoint that person. Someone had to sign off on those security contracts. I mean, these are these are this is thirty million dollars of state money that was handed over to a uh, to a company. Someone has to know who made that decision. Yeah, uh, when you put it that way, it makes sense. But the things I think of is uh, a, a book I've read by CEO Ben Horowitz of uh, of a, a Nasdaq listed company. Um, he says, when you're CEO of a large organisation. You will not believe the stupidity of some of the decisions that you hear of in your own organisation and yeah, you bury can, your head can, in your hands yeah, because you've got layers and layers of management and when you're at the top, you just can't control that. And mm -hmm. yes, $30 million is a large amount of money, but it's but $30 million is also a drop in the ocean. I mean, think of some of the, um, uh, the, the scandals of... Um, uh, losses that some investment banks were allowed to accrue from rogue traders, rogue traders with with unrestricted limits on the amount of trading or the amount of exposure they could have in their trades and losing I, hundreds I, of millions or billions. And I agree with you, Louis, but the senior managers ended up losing their jobs, okay? Mm -hmm. Regardless of who made the decision in their departments, ultimately the responsibility landed with the person at the top. Mm-hmm. And yep. that's all I'm saying in this position, right? Like, yeah. yes, I understand there might have been subordinates, there might have been middle management that made these decisions, uh, but to go outside and to hire the security firm that wasn't even on the preferred registers list uh, yep. and to bring that security firm in, uh, someone had to make that decision. And whether or not it was the minister or one of their top bureaucrats, uh, ultimately, someone at the top has to wear the responsibility and yeah. um, has to lose their job over it. Well, I guess it's, I mean, if you come back to it, it's just a problem with their actual processes because, you know, somewhere along the lines there was a process error because, you know, it was signed off in the first place. And I mean, we all know that with business as well. If you don't have the correct, um, you know, correct process in place, it can but, go so wrong. Okay. And, then, and the, the thing that bothers me about this whole situation is that if the people who don't know how they got themselves into this mess are the ones leading us out of this mess, what hope do we have? You know, because you have these decision biases that happen where where you've made a mistake and your only avenue is to try and fix it by whatever yeah. means you know how to fix it at whatever cost in order to save face. And right now, you know, my biggest concern about this whole mess is that we're listening to just one point of view around this whole health crisis and we're not listening to anybody else you know there's yeah. no consultation with business and if there is it's being dismissed you know there's no consultation with uh the health experts that are providing their consultation he's making decisions we're talking about andrews here he's making decisions completely independent of the advice that he's being given like we're even talking about things like the curfew and face masks. Um, these weren't orders that came from the chief medical officer. These were orders that captain's calls that Daniel Andrews says is the right thing to do. You know, the five kilometer radius. My understanding is that that wasn't even a, an order that was suggested from the chief medical officer. These are all Daniel Andrews calls. And, mm -hmm. and right now, 
there is no balance between whether or not we've got to keep people protected versus allowing other people to open up and, and stopping the other second order consequences that are coming as a result of, of, these, um, of these decisions. And now we're seeing further and further overreach. I mean, now we've got this omnibus bill that's in, sitting in the state parliament that's going to provide non-police, just bureaucrats who have the ability to lock people up on the suspicion that you might break the law. Now, where's the justice there? Where's the due process? Where's the reasonable, where's the fairness in a democracy that unappointed, unelected, uh, untrained, unskilled uh, appoint, appointees of you know, political party aligned, whatever you want to call it, can then go out and start making, you know, free will determinations as to who they want to lock up. I mean, this is open to mass abuse, so much so that you've got judges that are appealing against it, Former, uh, you've got the former um, a police commissioner uh, uh, who is appealing against it. Um, I just, I'm really quite uh, concerned about what's going on in this state right now. And, and, you know, you can see it by the way that I'm, I'm expressing my frustration. Mm. Tell us what you really feel. No, I, look, I understand, but I, I just think, um, you know, it needs to be more voices to that to, to change anything, doesn't it? it? Just, you know, it can't be a few people voicing their opinion. It has to be mass Australia saying, look, this is wrong. So we need more well, people to speak up. I think it's all very, very debatable. And, uh, and it's one of those situations where no one's got the answer because uh, never in modern times have we been in a situation like this before. Yeah. Um, of of all the of all the things that you've mentioned there, Joel, um, there's there's a lot to debate, but but the one probably biggest sticking point um, between us is the economic argument. And there was a report come out from McKinsey um, two or three weeks ago uh, about economies around the world, and what the what the report found was it wasn't lockdowns that were actually the statistically significant variable of uh, of economic performance it was actually presence of the virus that was the statistically significant um, indicator of economic performance and even countries that have an open economy but are letting the virus run um, they're they're the ones who are having the um, just as bad economic impact as the economies who have the virus but are shutting down. And then it's the economies who have actually been able to suppress or eliminate the virus that are ones that are able to come out of it and have their economies uh, recover to some extent. So look, it's still debatable, um, but the argument would be if we can suppress or eliminate the virus, then it means we can recover the economy faster. So it is a, a short period of pain uh, and the lockdowns enforce a certain amount of that economic pain. Um, but the benefit of it is that we have less economic pain over the long term for the duration that the virus lasts. Yeah. Can I ask Louis on that though? When you say economic pain for, for um, economies that are still open, are you saying because they have to go back into lockdown that's causing that issue for the economy? What What's causing them to... To, to fare worse? Um, I, I didn't look into it in, in that much detail, uh, but I would imagine the factors are if you've got presence of virus, then you've still got a lot of fear amongst the population um, and you've got a lot of people who are self-locking down. Uh, in, in fact, that's uh, recently I heard uh, 
uh, my, my wife read that that's a reason that herd immunity would never actually be a viable concept because you've got such a large proportion of the population that would uh, just self-isolate. Mm. And then the other thing uh, which, um, which comes to mind is that if you've got um, 10,000 or 20,000 people a week who are being infected, uh, well, your, your sick leave and absenteeism um, is huge. Um, if you've got some, if, if you've got a hundred thousand current cases of the virus, that's a hundred thousand people who are being removed from your workforce, disrupting supply chains um, and um, uh, and disrupting all kinds of of business outcomes. Look, I, I haven't seen the McKinsey report, so I can't comment on on what was in there. But um, it goes beyond just economics, though, Louis, from my perspective. I mean, I've never argued for, you know, uh, lack of social distancing, cleaning, sensible provisions, you know, being in place to, to sort of, you know, uh, to, to manage this. And uh, But the extent of the lockdowns is, is what I'm arguing, and the lack of nuance in the approach is what I'm arguing against, where you have uh, regional Victoria, for instance, are still being mandated to wear face masks, where there's been never any traces of coronavirus in, in some of these shires. Um, and today we've only got uh, a, a very small handful of active cases in regional Victoria, yet they're all still locked down in their own little, in their own little communities and they're all still uh, got, uh, you know, have to wear face masks where... The, the chances of catching coronavirus in these areas right now is is many many more times um, uh, less likely than uh, being struck by lightning um, in some instances, which I've been quoted. Yeah, uh, but you look at you look at what happened in Colac: zero cases, zero cases, zero cases, one case, twelve cases, thirty cases within a week. But is the but this is the thing though, Louis? It, it, are cases the problem? Are cases really the problem or should we be looking at who's going to be most affected by uh, this disease? And this is the argument that I'm coming down to. Um, myself, or mo it's been proven that most people underneath the age of sort of 60 years of age have almost bugger all chance of dying from this disease relative to those people who get it. So why are you locking down all of those people and, sh and suppressing their liberties when we know that the highest risk factors are those who have illnesses and those who are in aged care or late into into their into their age. Yeah. Um, well, I just wonder though, Joel, around that? I just wonder though, I mean, the thing is we don't know much about this virus yet and what the long-term health effects could be. But we know it's be. not as deadly as what, as what everyone was fearing it was earlier yeah. in the, when it first came out. So, yeah, so we, now we don't have the data when the facts on change, when the facts change, we should be changing with those facts. Okay, yeah, we should be starting to, to have a, hey? The response needs to change now. Yeah, correct. There needs to be a little bit more nuance. This is, I mean, right now you risk the, you know, the, the economic destruction and the, the mental well-being of many, many more people um, than what this disease is going to, to kill right now at this point in time. He's been successful in suppressing it, Okay. He's brought the numbers down. We can clearly see that the vast majority of these cases right now are happening in aged care. And for God's sake, I don't know why we've still got such a problem in aged care when, you know, I would have thought it'd be one of the first places that we'd try and, you know, continue to, to work hard to suppress it. Outside of aged care, the, the, the amount of community transmission that's taking place right now is only around about 2.9 per day. Mm. So why does it make sense for 6 million people 
um, to be locked down in the harshest lockdowns in the Western world where you've got community transmissions that right now are at 2.9. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know that the latest polls are showing that people are getting very frustrated and it's the first time that um, over 50% have wanted wanted the rules to actually lift. So I think there is yeah, certainly a sense of people wanting to get to back to some sort of normality with their lives. So I think it's one of those debates that's going to be raging on and on and no one's ever going to get it right or have the same opinion. So it's a healthy debate that we've had this morning. And I really appreciate the influence. That's 50%. Well, that 50% you just mentioned, they're stuck in Victoria where we're the worst victims of this. They're looking at all yeah. the other states that are, are basically living their lives as normal. You look at yeah. Queensland, Western Australia, South Australia, New South Wales for the majority, they're living without any of these restrictions. Yeah, no, I get it. Also, but their premier won't open up, though. <laughs> but, but let's call a spade a spade, right? The harshness of the lockdowns were the complete result of the contract tracing uh, program here in Victoria being completely inept. Ultimately, uh, the reason why we have such a harsh lockdown is because they couldn't control it when the virus first got out. They didn't control it when they could have controlled it. And they didn't have any confidence in their current system to be able to lock down and do what New South Wales has done so effectively to the point that New South Wales has had no community transmissions now for, in fact, no new uh, coronavirus cases outside of return travellers for the last three or four days. I mean, it works if if you can manage the situation and, you, and your contract tracing is up to speed, you've got the right resources, the right people with the right incentives, uh, putting the right people in place, you can get on top of this and you can open up and you can be mo much more nuanced. New South Wales has done it effectively. Victoria hasn't done it. We're in a harsh lockdown, largely because they don't trust themselves to be able to manage this virus themselves with the with the contract tracing system that they have in place. Healthy debate, healthy debate, guys. Look, we're going to have to close out there. Well, we're going to take our first break and we'll be back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. All right, welcome back, guys. Uh, after that very heated debate, we're going to throw over to Brett, and you're I've, going to talk to us I've about how long the it takes. To... I've got some ice on my forehead. You've got some ice on your forehead. <laughs> <laughs> well, let, let's see if this one's a little bit uh, less heated. Uh, you're going to be speaking to us, Brett, about how long it's going to take for for people to save a deposit in each capital city in Australia? Well, I'm not sure if I can put as much emotion into this as the last segment had, but we'll give it a crack, eh? Come on, Brad. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sure Joel's got week. something to say. All right, well, well, let me put some bait oh, out there and see where it goes. Oh, uh, shut up. Jump <laughs> <laughs> in whenever you feel free. Uh, last week when I was discussing um, the affordability of property, how, in effect, with finance, it's cheaper now than it was uh, 10 years ago, if, if we do a comparison on, on the total cost of ownership. So this week I'm looking at what it takes or how long it takes for someone looking to enter the property market to save a deposit. 
uh, obviously the, the, to purchase a house, the majority of purchases are, are getting borrowings from the bank, which is how, what we discussed last week. They're getting interest rates, you know, in the two percent at the moment. But the bank will never give you the total cost of ownership. They'll only give you a percentage of that, uh, which is what we call a loan to value ratio on LVR. The majority of, of banks are comfortable to lend up to 80% of a property's value, which means that anyone wanting to buy a property needs to find the balance of that, the 20% plus associated cost that would allow them to own the property. And I've got some data here that, that came out this week just using the entry level pricing of each capital city in Australia and combining that with the average wage in those cities to work out how long it would cost to actually save that deposit for people looking to get onto the market. So no surprise, the longest time would be Sydney. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whilst they've probably got the highest wages on average, they've also got the highest pricing by a substantial way. So what's considered an entry level price in Sydney is 680,000. Uh, so the forecast time for someone without any savings to try and save a deposit for that is six years and six months. Right. Mm. On the opposite end of that spectrum, so the shortest time is Darwin, which basically for the same reason, the wages, whilst they're probably lower than Sydney, it's it's not a massive chunk lower. It's not like it's half of what Sydney is, yet the property prices are less than half. Right. So okay. An, an entry level uh, home in Darwin is, is priced at 362000 So to be able to save a deposit there would only take just over three years. Yeah. So dramatic difference. And, and the spread is between that three and six. Obviously, Melbourne's second behind Sydney at, at just on six years. Uh, Hobart, uh, a fourth at four years and two months. Actually, sorry, Canberra, uh, a third behind Melbourne and Sydney at five years and five months. Brisbane at four years and six months. Uh, Perth at three years and five. And Hobart at four years and two. Mm, right. Okay. Uh, one other part to it. That was based on entry-level houses. Entry-level units or apartments brings the timing down a little bit, but not a whole lot in Sydney. Sydney apartments are still pretty expensive with the uh, entry-level unit at 585000 So to save up for that, it's still going to take you the best part of five and a half years. Right. So this is where I think the bank of mum and dad comes into play a lot for a lot of people. Absolutely. People looking to enter the market that uh, can try and get uh, a loan from their parents, as long as they're working and they can service a mortgage, quite often it's the parents that come up with the deposit for them just to get them started. Uh, I think we, we've spoken on the podcasts quite a while ago that it's actually considered the fifth biggest lender in Australia, the bank of mum <laughs> and dad, and the family. Uh, so I would assume that's, that's still the case and, and that would be the best way for anyone that wants to fast track this six years, if they're not a good saver, if they're not following all Louis and Joel's advice about how to manage their funds, <laughs> the next best thing is to go and knock on your parents' door and, and see if you can borrow from them. Absolutely. That's a, that's a huge leg up. If you, can, if you can get ahead by four or five or six years on, on starting your, your wealth um, journey, um, that's, a, that's a huge head start. Yeah. Definitely. Louis, I've I've done uh, I've done um, uh, projections for some clients that uh, over say over a thirty year period of time that ha if we took their if we took their uh, regular superannuation contributions, projected that over a thirty year period of time, 
and uh, and and we then cut off that projection by just five years. Uh, I've shown that uh, that the end result could be as much as forty percent less um, by starting just five years later than what they would have had they have. Uh, continued um, or started their investment journey uh, just that five years earlier. Yeah. So the difference yep. between 25 years of investing versus 30 years of investing can be a, a lifetime of difference. Oh, it's massive. Yeah. Yeah. If you can start at age 30 instead of age 35, um, it's it's huge. Absolutely. Wow. Any advice for if you don't have a, a mum and dad to support with that lending? I know it's you know probably a question for, for Joel and Louis to talk about, but um, a lot of people don't have access to that kind of thing as well and don't have parents in a position to, to help fund um, or stump up the, de the deposit. Any advice? It's really simple. It comes back to just having the discipline to save. Just yeah. manage your money so you're, you're spending less than you earn and, and you're banking the rest. What about you know putting uh, the money into shares if you if you're sort of starting out as young and to help grow uh, that deposit more quickly? Is there a possibility to do something like that if you're just starting out? Yeah, there is, uh, and and especially if you're um, if you can see that you've got five years ahead of you to to build up your savings, mm -hmm. uh, then you can maybe try and accelerate that savings by earning a better return on the investment while you're doing the saving. Yeah. And for our listeners out there, what kind of, I mean, obviously people would be thinking there's a risk associated with that and they obviously don't want to lose their deposit. What kind of things, well, what kind of strategy would you put them into? Um, you would, um, you'd have a mixture of strategies. Uh, you, you wouldn't want to put 100% of it into the share market because when you're at the end of your five years uh, and you're ready to, uh, to withdraw the investment to, to actually pay your deposit, if you've still got all of that money in share markets, well, you could be uh, you could be down ten percent on that investment if there just happens to be a market correction uh, in the in the month before you um, redeem the investment. So you'd uh, you'd only have a portion um, exposed to that kind of thing uh, yeah. would would be the main thing, uh, and and being really selective of um, of of how all of those uh, different parts of that savings is allocated across maybe two or three or four uh, different kinds of investments, some some safe but returning low returns uh, and maybe one or two uh, being a bit more aggressive for high returns. And Brett, just another question for you as well, those sort of entry-level apartments, is it, um, is it something that you would recommend that people, you know, get into that entry level or wait and save a little bit more or longer and, and, and sort of wait it out and buy something that's a, a little bit uh, better in the long run? Well, the statistics I was reading, I guess the assumption underlying it is that people are buying a property to live in. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that that'll come down to their circumstances because quite often they'll be limited to where they can live and, and what, the, you know, there's affordability in, in different parts of, of every city. So mm -hmm. if, if it were for investment purposes, if they want to get on the property market purely for investment purposes, no, we, we try to steer away from, from most units. There's, there's always exceptions, but typically... You know, some sort of land content attached to your dwelling is, is preferred because it tends to grow in value better. Uh, but again, if, if it's somewhere they're buying just to get on the market and have a home that they own, they might not have as much choice. Yeah. And what about, sort of? It, I guess it comes down to your circumstances again, but what about buying in those uh, property markets that are actually a lot lower um, and renting in, um, you know, your major capital cities where you, where you live instead? Is that, you know, a strategy that you'd sort of even recommend? Or again, it comes down to personal circumstance? 
yeah, rent vesting is a, a great strategy for those that, that do need to live or, or want to live somewhere for either work or lifestyle reasons, um, yet also, you know, have a financial future they want to try and provide for through property investing. And quite often where you want to live may not be the best performing property for investment purposes. So if you run the numbers and you get some good advice, it can be a very sound strategy to, to buy an investment property elsewhere that will grow in value yet still rent where it is you want to live. Yeah, good one. And um, for, for people that are looking to invest in their first um, first property, what kind of advice would you say to those listeners out there that are, that are looking at these properties and where should they go to get sort of some kind of, you know, sort of, you know intel on, on what they're buying and you know, it's what they should purchase? pretty easy plug. The, the person you're speaking to right now can help. <laughs> um, but look, pro probably the first thing is is if they believe they've got, you know, their financial affairs in reasonable order and they want to start dipping their toe into the market is is find a good mortgage broker or come and yep. speak to us and refer you to one and just get absolute clarity on what their borrowing capacity and, and what the process is going to be for them to actually be able to, to purchase a property. Uh, if, if they don't want to engage an advocate or, or an advisor to assist or facilitate the transaction, they just need to read all the articles and get reviewing the properties on, on realestate.com and domain and, and just start to see what's selling at what sort of pricing so they can get an understanding of fair value. Uh, yeah. And then read a number of, of research reports and, and look at some historical data as, as to what's driven property prices over the long term in some of those areas. Yeah, good one. Well, there you go, listeners. If uh, you need some help with purchasing a property, uh, you know where to come. Just give Brett a call. <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take another quick break and we'll be back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance, or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capitals Advisors are experts on consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, welcome back guys. We're now going to throw over to Louis and we're going to continue with a topic that he covered last week and that is the magic number for retirement and how to get there. Yeah, absolutely, Steph. Um, I, I really patted myself on the back after last week's podcast. I thought it was one of the best podcasts I've ever done. So, um, so naturally, I want to keep that going on. Uh, and I've been inundated with compliments and feedback from <laughs> listeners and my fellow podcasters on how good it was last week. Um, to be honest, when I said that this morning, uh, neither Joel, Brett, or Steph remembered. What <laughs> It's been a big week. <laughs> anyway, it, it felt good, so I'll keep going with it. So uh, the thing which I first thought of is um, when I'm describing that magic number concept, the, the number that people need to be aiming for in retirement um, and how I calculate it, um, and, and I'll typically get a, a, a number of assets to be aiming for in retirement of sometimes $1 million, sometimes $2 million, sometimes $5 million dollars, uh, and, and whatever it is for the individual, then we work out, well, what is your number today? So what have you already got in your super fund? What assets do you already have as investments uh, in, in net worth um, minus your home loan? Whenever I'm dealing with someone in their 30s or, or, or even uh, and 40s, even late 40s still, the value of their home loan is still a lot higher than the value of their super fund, and they get totally freaked out 
um, that they're actually starting from a, a negative number. Yeah. So what I want to do today is give a bit of reassurance and that uh, mm -hmm. you, you can still actually get a really good retirement from, uh, from where you are today. And it comes down to what is a financial planner's job. So in financial planning, we talk about a lot of cool strategies uh, that will optimise your finances, things that we can do to save tax, to reduce your debts, uh, to use your cash flow to build assets. But 80% of the value that we provide and what is going to generate the biggest difference for your finances is the return that you get on your investments. So in Australia, everyone has a superannuation fund if you've ever worked a job with an employer that pays you super. So where you have super, you've already got this asset base and I'll run through some numbers on super in a moment. The best thing a financial planner can do for you is two things. One is to point you to where you're going to get the best investment returns over the long term. And the second is help you to accumulate more assets. Little things like um, getting the right proportion of paying down debt versus savings. Yeah, they're, they're helpful, but it's not the big results. Little things like how do I minimise my tax in the best way? It's, it's a little outcome, but it's not the biggest result. The biggest thing is to help you to accumulate more assets and then have those assets grow with the highest long-term rate possible. So for people who are freaked out by their current negative uh, position for retirement, uh, let me go through some numbers. Uh, I'm, I'm going to assume that the people freaked out are around age 40 and as a, as a family household, uh, between two people, you've maybe got about $300,000 in your combined superannuation value, and you've got maybe $10,000 a year in super contributions. If you're looking at a 15-year retirement plan, so that's pretty good, you know, from age 40 to age 55. This is an early retirement that we're talking about. If you've got $300,000 at the moment in super, you're contributing $10,000 a year, but you only earn a 6% return on your investment, then you're going to get close to a million bucks in 15 years' time. You're going to have about $950,000. But if instead of 6%, you can earn 8% per year over the long term, uh, that extra 2% of earnings is going to add $270,000 to your balance at the end of 15 years. So now you're up to $1,220,000. The way cumulative interest works is every additional percentage at a higher amount increases the power of the compounding effect. So from 6% to 8%, you get an extra $270,000. But from 8% to 10%, you get an extra $350,000. And from 10% to 12%, you get an extra $445,000 to the point where if you can get a 10% return on your investment, if you've got $300,000 in super right now, 10% return, $10,000 a year of contributions, in 15 years, you're going to have $1.5 million. Wow. Yeah. $1,570,000. $1, Off to the Bahamas. 
if you can even push that to 12%, now you're over $2 million, $2 million and $15,000. So the biggest thing a financial planner will do is help you to get a higher mm. rate of return by putting you in the right investments. Yeah. And secondly, helping you to get more assets. Because if you find a way that you can actually put more money into super or can save a higher amount and accumulate other assets or use gearing strategies to purchase an investment property or a share portfolio, um, whatever you can do to accumulate more assets so that instead of starting with 300,000, you can actually somehow magically start with 400,000 or start with 500,000. It's going to absolutely magnify where you're going in 10 and 15 and 20 years time. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's uh, another, very powerful. Very powerful. Yeah. Another quick question for you, Louie. You probably have touched on this before, but what is the maximum that somebody can contribute to super in a year? Uh, it depends if you're talking about tax deductible contributions or yeah. non-tax deductible contributions. Okay. And it depends on whether you could maybe meet some other circumstances as well. And if you're talking per year or if you're talking a, a one-off every few years, uh, there's lots of complications uh, yeah. that come in, in between that. Depends how much an employer is already paying in. Uh, so you can't put in infinite amounts of money into the super environment. Yeah. Uh, and I can go through that technical stuff later. But again, th those are tax optimization strategies mm. by moving money out of your personal name where you might pay a high rate of tax into the super environment where you're paying a lower rate of tax. Yeah. And as far as your big outcome, it's not as much of an impact as just saving money and just putting it into investments that earn a return at the end of it. Yeah. Minimising tax, absolutely important because you minimise the loss of those future investment returns in tax payable. So I'm not saying it's not important, but I'm saying it's not the first question. First mm -hmm. question's got to be, Let's accumulate those assets. Yeah. 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 Here, here. Well said. Thank you. So right. my question for everyone else is, uh, was this my best ever podcast episode? <laughs> Write in and tell us, guys. If you want to vote on Louis' podcast, it's either last week or this week. Just let us know. <laughs> now, guys, we're going to have to close out uh, for today because we're right, right on time. But um, we'll just kick off with our favourite topic, and that is you can't be serious. Joel, do you want to start by kicking off today? I'm going to talk about uh, a rat. And I'm not talking about Daniel Andrews. I'm talking about <laughs> a very famous rat over in Cambodia who's saving lives just like his counterpart, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Always no, time for a little barb, isn't it? <laughs> this particular rat uh, has, uh, has actually earned a gold medal for identifying and sniffing out unexploded landmines in Cambodia. Magawa is the so-called hero rat, that's his name, and uh, he runs around with a small blue collar on uh, attached to a British veterinary, uh, a British veterinary um, uh, person who has been able to train this rat in identifying uh, landmines and scratching out landmines so that uh, the children and people of Cambodia are um, are safer uh, as a result. So uh, yes, you can't be serious. Uh, rats in the nineteen thirty in, in the thirteen hundreds were the were the were the cause of the Black Plague, 
uh, today, they're now actually saving lives. That's actually an exceptional story. Pretty, pretty <laughs> impressive. So there you go. Just go and catch some rats and see if you can train them. You sure can make is. a lot of money out of that. Louis, what have you got for us? Um, has anyone here ever tried blackmail? Can't say that. No. Oh, maybe with Joel sometimes. <laughs> if, you, if you were to try blackmail... Um, who would your likely target be? Who are you likely to actually be able to blackmail successfully? Do you think it would be one of the big four banks of Australia? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, someone's had a crack at it. So <laughs> the ANZ has, uh, has vacated one of their branches and the owner of the, the real estate property which, uh, which they had been leasing came into what was supposed to be a, an empty office uh, and found some paperwork that had been left behind. And they were client files that contained some, some private client data in them. So what does this real estate agent do? Um, he, um, he tries to blackmail the ANZ bank. Wow. And says, if you want this client, if you want these client files back, please pay me $25,000 and I will release them to you. Yeah, and I'll see you. And and yeah, he's going to get away with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not not your smartest cookie. No. Uh, so um, uh, obviously ANZ made arrangements with lawyers and police to uh, pretty easily keep a paper trail of this email correspondence. <laughs> wow, nice try. Like uh, impressing that he even went yeah. there. So. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, and he's now been uh, convicted, but he has avoided jail. Uh, convicted in the Victorian courts of attempted uh, blackmail. Oh, I'm sure that cost him more money than it was worth So, yeah. and, and his career. All right, Brett, what have you got for us? Well, I'm, I'm going back to the rodent stories with Joel. Well, it's not quite a rodent, uh, and, and it's also a threat of a potential pandemic, but a, uh, a British it's wildlife... not Dan Andrews again, is it, Brett? Well, what I'm about to tell you is what they were saying to Dan Andrews. <laughs> so there was a group of... Uh, of five parrots that they had to separate in a British wildlife sanctuary because they were collectively telling each other just to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> Which amused most of the patrons who found it funny, but uh, the zookeeper was, was worried that these, these parrots start to form colonies. If they teach everyone else, they're going to have 250 parrots running around just saying fuck <laughs> off the whole time. I think Brett, you actually win this morning, and that is that is great. Guys, we're going to have to wrap it up there this morning. But thank you so much, and to our listeners for tuning in. Have a fabulous weekend. I hope everyone gets out and enjoys the sunshine because it is going to be a nice day in Melbourne on Saturday. So enjoy and have a fabulous uh, have a fabulous time, and uh, we'll be back next week. Sounds good. Thanks, awesome. guys. Thanks, Thanks Deb. Thanks, Thanks guys. Cheers. Bye-bye.